We come now to John chapter 19. We come to the beloved disciples' account of the crucifixion of our Lord. And uh, it is an amazing passage to behold. You know, John had the advantage of writing his gospel a little later. So he knew what the other gospel writers had included. He knew uh, what they had said and what they had maybe had not said, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And inspired by the Spirit, John brings a few other details to bear for us. And they're important details. But as we think about uh, what the <clears throat> message of the evangelist here or any of the gospel writers is, is that Christ came and died for a purpose. Christ came and gave His life as a ransom for many. And so we want to think about that today. In fact, as we look at this passage, it's a, a long passage. We're not going to read the length of this passage again. We're going to focus really on 28 through 30 today. And even then, trying to look at it in the bigger question of the work of Christ, the completed work of Christ, which is really to say Christ's obedience. That is really the point of it. Because Christ's work was what His Father gave Him to accomplish. So the question is, was Christ obedient to that mission on which He was sent? And we know the answer to that. Yes, He was obedient. So we want to look at this theme today. It's going to be a single point sermon. Christ's completed work, Christ's obedience. And so let's look at this text again, just 28 through 30, as we think about what it's telling us here. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Brothers and sisters, there is so much in this passage, the longer passage that we read, that if we were walking through John's gospel right now, we would spend a long time, months maybe, in just this chapter. And even in what we're reading today, there's so much that we could walk through and, and, and look at, down to even the mention of hyssop, that this sponge was put on hyssop and the, the tie of the hyssop to the Old Testament and that blood was sprinkled on the ark with hyssop. Over and over, all these references that John is giving us, so rich is the text and history that God has given us here. And yet today, what I want to try to do is have us look at the larger context of Christ's obedience and His completed work and why He could claim and say and announce it is finished. And so we're going to look at that, Christ's obedience. Right at the beginning, we must declare that the entire life of Christ leads to this moment. The entire purpose of His coming leads to this moment. Uh, more than that, you could argue that the entire history of Scripture is pointing to this moment which is to say that all of eternity is pointing to this moment in which Christ is on this cross at Calvary and comes this moment where He declares it is finished. What is finished? All of it, all that God has been doing, all that God has been planning since eternity past is culminated and fulfilled in this moment. So in reality we can say all of human history certainly is pointed forward to this moment when the Son of God would bear the iniquity of sinners upon the tree. It's the purpose for which He entered the world. If we're not comfortable with that, we can just look at what Paul says. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. What? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
Now Paul adds to that, of which I was chiefest. I'm foremost amongst the sinners, Paul says, but Christ came into the world to save sinners. And all of the accounts of the Old Testament uh, have providentially pointed to this. You can look at the promise in the Garden of Eden of a seed of woman who would crush the serpent's head, the proto-evangelium, the, the first gospel, the message that God was going to restore in Christ what was lost in Adam. You can look at the call of God to bring Abram out of idolatry, out of his land, to bring him into a new place, and to call him to be the father of a great promise, and that through his seed all the nations would be blessed. And then, of course, his child of promise, Isaac, who God kept his word and fulfilled that promise. And then even that child who carried his own wood of sacrifice up Mount Moriah to uh, be given as a sacrifice, and yet that was interrupted when God provided his own sacrifice. All these shadows, prophecies, and promises fulfilled in the Old Testament in Christ Jesus, pointing forward to him that Jacob would be the founder of a providentially selected people, that Christ would come amongst that people, the son of David, greater than David, but David's son. Countless prophecies, shadows, and promises find their fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. Paul states in 1 Corinthians that Christ is our Passover lamb. Again, fulfilling one of the major pictures of the Old Testament to say Christ is, is the fulfillment of all these things. Truly God and truly man, living a sinless life, obedient in every way. The spotless Lamb of God. He alone can bear the weight of iniquity. He alone can wipe out what Paul calls in Colossians chapter 2, the handwriting of requirements that was against us, that was contrary to us. And that word that Paul uses there really means almost like a, a legal note of debt. He says he wiped it out. He canceled it. He paid it in full. When he says it is finished, he means the debt has been paid. All of this in perfect obedience to the will and plan of God. And that obedience is best seen in the horrors of the cross. In the horrors of the cross. Now, we speak of the glories of the cross. And it is glorious. We stand reconciled to a holy and righteous God through what Christ did on that cross. But my friends, to stand there and behold it, it was filled with horrors. There's a reason that Christ in Gethsemane prayed, if there is another way, take this cup, this cup of wrath away from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he was obedient to the point of death. And if you want to think about it, it's not just that he came and was obedient in life and obedient in death, but Paul says he was obedient to death. Yes, even the death of the cross. So we can see Christ's perfect obedience in His death. But it's magnified in the kind of death He died. The King of glory, blasphemed, spit upon, dishonored, the one through whom all things were made, beaten and abused, a crown of thorns pressed upon His head. Nevertheless, look at how John records the beginning of our passage today. If you turn back to verse 17, he says, And He, meaning Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Notice here, Jesus is not being carried away. He's not being dragged. John wants us to realize this is intentional. Nothing is happening here. 
that is outside of the control of God? Nothing. This isn't like the liberal theologians argue that Jesus just got swept up in this seditious movement and got somehow ushered to the cross. John wants us to know this is the plan of God from eternity past and that it's all being fulfilled as we see it in this text. Nothing out of control. Nothing out of step. All of it happening according to the divine will of God. And we can see that over and over again in the text where event after event happens and John records this happens so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Again, time after time the Scriptures are fulfilled in the gambling. At Psalm 22 where, uh, where in the Psalms it says that they divided my garments among them and they cast lots for my clothing. Again, even at the moment at the end where Jesus is, is thirsting, In that same psalm, it says that his mouth is so dry, his tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth. We know that in the other accounts, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very first verse of Psalm 22. So my friends, over and over we see that what is recorded here is John saying, make no mistake about it, this is not some historical car crash that's happening outside of anyone's control. This is the divine will and plan of God being brought to fruition. And Christ willingly goes out, willingly goes out to bear the sins of His people. So He's showing His obedience even to death, the death of the cross. And that is to say the most despicable means of death ever planned, ever dreamt of. You know, the Persians are the ones that invented uh, crucifixion. The Romans saw it and they were like, this is a pretty smart idea. This is a pretty brutal way of killing someone. We should adopt it. And we can make a public spectacle of all those enemies that we want to put to death. My friends, so uh, brutal was this method of death that a method that would already take at least hours for you to die as you hang there, being pulled apart uh, by your ligaments and so forth, as you hang there and you suddenly get your chest in a position where you cannot lift yourself to get a breath. So the Romans said, you know, the Persians let them die too fast. Let's put a little angled piece at the feet. Let's put a little seat on the cross so you can prop yourself up on it for a time and get your breath back before you pass out and begin to collapse again. And what should only cause suffering for a few hours can be drug out into days of suffering. My friends, the Lord's on His timetable. He's not going to die when these elements take their effect. He's going to die at just the right time. And John lets us know that. That at the moment when all these things had been fulfilled, Jesus gave up His Spirit. My friends... What we want to recognize is that the Romans saw the cross as a cursed way to die. So did the Persians. But for our benefit, we want to recognize so did the Jews. That's why Paul can say, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. What Paul wants you to recognize is again, And this is in Galatians 3. Paul wants us to recognize again that this isn't an accident, but the will of God. And that Christ would die in just this way. Hanging in the most cursed manner upon a tree. Giving His life in the most anguishing way. Why? 
because he had to truly become a curse for us. He had to take the wrath of God upon himself, the penalty of our sins. Though he was spotless and sinless, though he was perfect, our iniquity was placed on his account. He bore our sins upon the tree. Paul, in continuing that idea in Galatians chapter 3, moves on into verse 14. He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs upon the tree. Why did he do it? That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, many people misunderstand that whole cup reference in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. They think what Jesus was really worried about is the physical pain that he would go through. But that isn't what cup references in the, in the Bible, is it? Over and over when you see the reference to a cup or a chalice, it always refers to divine judgment being poured out. What Christ really saying in that moment, if there is a way to avoid it, it's that he would become a curse. That God would curse him, put our sin upon him and his wrath upon Christ. This is what Christ recognized was the weight of this moment. My friends, oftentimes we don't think about what this is telling us. That Christ had the wrath of those in rebellion, those sinners placed upon Him, yet He Himself was not a rebel, but perfectly obedient. He had no sin. He was perfect in His obedience. The perfect Israelite, the perfect Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God. And yet He would drink this cup of divine judgment and drink it to the very end. See, that's the, that's the part he was wary of. And it's a right thing to think about that for a moment. The second person of the Trinity would in some way that is not fathomable to us feel this moment, at least feel this separation from God due to the weight of the sin being placed upon him. To understand this, we have to think about what a curse is. When Paul uses the term that He became a curse for us, taking our curse upon Himself. It's easy for us just to read that and move on and not think about what a curse is. Most of us, our only reference to curses is from science fiction or something like that or some kind of book on spells or some nonsense like that. And yet, in the Bible, a curse is kind of structured as the opposite of a blessing, the opposite of grace. Grace is what? Unmerited favor that God shows upon us. A curse is deserved judgment, deserved wrath, if you will. To illustrate this point, R.C. Sproul in his book, The Work of Christ, said the only way that we can really think about how to understand a curse is to take that uh, ultimate blessing, that benedictory blessing of Numbers 6, 22 through 26 and reverse it. He said, have you ever thought about that? Now, he expanded this in a very famous sermon he preached one time, a very powerful sermon. And I would uh, advise you to go look that up on YouTube. It's called The Curse Motif. And, um, but here's the point. He said, if you take that numbers blessing and you reverse it, this is what it means to be cursed. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness forever and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn His back upon you and remove from you His peace forever. My friends, those words should frighten you, should send a chill up your spine to recognize 
what it means. So when Paul speaks of Christ becoming a curse, we read over this sometimes without thinking, but we need to think about what's being said here. What it meant for Christ to have our sin imputed to Him before a righteous and holy God. Now we know that he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sembachnathan. And the thing about this is, when you look at that term, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's important to recognize this is no fiction. This is no fiction. This is some sense in which God, the Father, had turned away in some measure. It's hard for us to understand. In fact, I was reading this week, I want to quote something to you, if I can turn my page here to get to it, that I read this week from J.C. Ryle. And he speaks about this remarkable passage. He says, Let us observe in the first place the remarkable words which Jesus uttered shortly before his death. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There is a deep mystery in these words which no mere mortal man can fathom. No doubt they were not wrung from our Lord by mere bodily pain. Such an explanation is utterly unsatisfactory and dishonorable to our blessed Savior. They were meant to express the real pressure on his soul of the enormous burden of sin. They were meant to show how truly and literally he was our substitute, was made sin, was made a curse for us, and endured God's righteous anger against the world's sin in his own person. At that awful moment, the iniquity of us all was laid upon him to the uttermost. It pleased the Lord to bruise him and put him to grief. He bore our sins. He carried our transgressions. Heavy must have been that burden. Real and literal must have been our Lord's substitution for us when He, the eternal Son of God, could speak of Himself for a time as forsaken. As forsaken. My friends, he goes on to say, Let the expression sink down into our hearts and not be forgotten. We can have no stronger proof of the sinfulness of sin or of the vicarious nature of Christ's suffering, then his cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It is a cry that should stir us to hate sin and encourage us to trust more in Christ. My friends, as you think about what he's saying there, there is a divine mystery here. None of us are going to understand how the perfectly unified Trinitarian God, for a time the second person of that Trinity could say, that the first person had forsaken him, that's beyond my ability to grasp. I think often of Blaise Pascal, who said, for us to understand the great things of God is like a dog trying to understand higher math. And uh, oftentimes, as I read the Scriptures, I recognize my inability to fathom all of it. But it should remind us of what Christ did for us, of the great weight of sin He bore on our behalf. Now, this saying is not recorded in John. We know that. But it is interesting that after these many recordings of events that are fulfilled, one after the other fulfilled in what occurs at this moment, Christ comes to this moment where he says, I am thirsty or I thirst. And of course they give him this sour wine. We want to make sure that we don't misunderstand this is not the same thing he was offered earlier that was mixed with myrrh that the people of Jerusalem would often offer those who were about to be uh, crucified. It had a sedative effect, more or less. It would allow them to suffer less. Jesus rejected that. But he cries out here that he is thirsty, knowing that they will offer, because it's providentially appointed that they will offer him the sour wine. And at that moment, as we read, 
He says, it is finished. It is finished. My friends, what he wants us to recognize is that all of the plan of God for which he came to redeem sinners is completed in that one moment. That one word, tatelestai, which ultimately means for something to be complete. It's a significant word for something to be fully accomplished, fully complete, no part of it lacking. You may think of it because it comes from the same root word in Greek that telos comes from. You might remember in Romans chapter 10, Paul says that the telos of the law, the end or aim or goal of the law, is Christ Jesus. In the same way, Christ says, the goal, the aim for which I came has now been complete, perfectly made complete. This in no way diminishes the importance of the resurrection, the ascension, or future glory for the people of God, but it means that all of that is predicated on what Christ did here. Christ first had to go to the cross. We often say that Easter is the most important day we celebrate as Christians. Why? Because his birth into the world means nothing if he didn't live in obedience, become the perfect Lamb of God, and go to the cross. And he can't rise from the dead if he didn't first go to the cross. It all hinges on this moment where Christ says, it is finished. He's declaring that the purpose for which he entered the world has been fully accomplished. Now I want to close by mentioning that there are many cardinal points of faith found in this text. Many cardinal points of theology and faith that are bound up into this. First of all, and we need to get it right, first of all, there is a curse upon sin. My friends, that would seem laughable a few hundred years ago to argue, but uh, over the last 150 years, this has been greatly argued, that there is no curse for sin, that God is a God only of love, there is no judgment, there is no wrath, there is no uh, penalty for sin. And of course they say this in complete contradiction to the Word of God, which over and over says that the wages of sin is death. And that's not the only place it argues it, is it? Over and over again, uh, we are told in the Scriptures that the penalty for sin is death. Sin brings us under the wrath of God. And we see that from the very beginning. It's the argument of Scripture that when Adam disobeyed God, he brought sin upon the entire human race. And we in corruption have no right to complain about Adam because we ourselves engage in sin regularly. We rebel against the holy and righteous God, and that holy and righteous God cannot abide sin. And so there is a problem. God is holy and righteous, and we are not. And what we deeply desire is to be reconciled. Well, not in our nature we don't reconcile, deeply desire to be reconciled, but the plan of God is to reconcile sinners to Himself. And so we need to recognize this. If you want to see this kind of debate in the, in the current age, you may remember just a few years ago, uh, the Presbyterian Church USA, that's one of the more liberal Presbyterian uh, churches, uh, they asked the Gettys permission to alter one of their hymns in Christ alone. You know, it says, um, on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Right? That is a cardinal argument, right, of historical faith. They wanted to change it. On that cross where Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Now, that's okay in one sense, right? The love of God is magnified in what was accomplished on the cross. But it isn't so much in what they're saying as what they're trying not to say, you see? 
So it's important what they're trying to avoid saying. They do not want to say that God's wrath was satisfied in Christ going to the cross. Although the Bible has no problem saying it. Church history has had no problem saying it up until the last 150 years. We should have no problem saying it. If Christ did not come and satisfy the wrath of God, surely we ourselves would have to. And all those outside of Christ will. All those outside of Christ will. My friends, we need to recognize that this is an important point that cannot be compromised at all. This text tells us, and the text we've looked at today, that Christ became a curse for us. Took that curse upon Himself. That is given to us in stark biblical language of what that means for Christ to have done that. The second cardinal point I think we need to walk away from uh, this with today is the atoning work of Christ is complete. There's nothing left to be done. There's no uh, further thing that we're waiting on Him to do that we might be saved. He did it all. It is finished. If you don't believe me, just read what He says. It is finished. It is made complete. And that brings me to my third and final point I think we need to take away from this. Yes, the atoning work of Christ is complete, but it's completed by Him and Him alone. There's nothing you can do to add to it. There's nothing you can do to earn it for yourself. He satisfied the wrath of God by bearing the curse on our behalf. Christ bore it. I was reading just this last week in some of the uh, old writings of the Reformers that they were talking about even the image in the Garden of Gethsemane that Christ went in with just the cream of the crop of disciples. And that He even pulled away from them and went a little further in by Himself was a reminder that Christ alone could bear the weight of this. And then they said, if you want to go back and see the, the picture that's painted there, that when He returns to them, they're asleep, totally unready for the hour that is upon them. But Christ is ready. All of history has pointed to this hour, and Christ alone is sufficient to bear the weight of sin. My friends, we err here if we think that we can earn our own salvation. If we think that we have it through uh, whatever means we might think. We often talk about uh, when they do surveys and they ask, uh, do you believe you're a Christian? And people will say yes. They say why? They say, well, I've been a member at such and such church for 20 years. I go to Sunday school. I have a Bible. I have a picture of Jesus on the wall of my living room. My parents were uh, faithful Christians. Whatever the answer might be, none of those are the right answer. You're a Christian if you stand in Christ Jesus by faith. That's it. That's it. We stand in Christ and Him alone, His completed work. There's nothing we can add to it. So brothers and sisters, as we approach Easter and we think about what Christ did for us, let's remember that He did it and He did it alone.